Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Philippians chapter 3. In our text for today, Paul is going to make some strong statements. One overarching statement is confidence in Christ leads to eternal joy. On the opposite, confidence in self leads to eternal loss. Now, typically, when I preach, I try to get to the text as quickly as possible. But this morning, I am going to diverge from that and begin with an illustration that I think will help us uh, understand a little bit of what Paul is, is getting at here in our text. So I'll be reading a poem many of you may have heard from the early 20th century, and uh, it's a fun, lighthearted poem that uh, illustrates confidence in the flesh. It says this, the outlook was, was br- wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning more to play. Then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in despair, in deep despair. The rest clung to the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could get a whack at that, we'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a hodo and the latter was a cake. So upon the stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted, the men saw what had occurred. There was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a hug in third. Then from 5,000 throats there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell. It pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into this place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile at Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt it was Casey at the bat. 10,000 eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. 5,000 tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then, while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance flashed in Casey's eye, a sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered spear came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went a muffled roar, like the beating of of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Out with the umpire, shouted someone in the stand. It's likely they'd had thrown him out had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the dun sphere 
flew, but Casey still ignored it. The umpire said, strike two. Fraud, cried the maddened thousands, and echoed, an echo answered, fraud. But one scornful look from Casey and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let the ball go by again. The sneer is, going, is gone from Casey's lip. The t- his teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds the, with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere. Somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. If you grew up as, uh, you know, in the 80s or earlier, there was a Disney put together a cartoon that followed this. And at the end of their cartoon, it shows poor Casey in tears, in the rain, trying to hit a baseball. The hero of the story has disappointed. This poem by Ernest Lawrence Thayer illustrates the folly of placing trust in unworthy places. The crowd had their trust, the fans in the stand, that Casey could win the game. Casey had his trust in his own abilities, both disappointed. John Calvin commenting on our text today, in describing what works of the flesh are, putting confidence in these works that we produce, in describing that, he says, works of the flesh are uh, everything that is outside of Christ. Everything that is outside of Christ falls into the category of works of the flesh. And what we'll see in our text today is that true joy comes from confidence in the righteousness in the righteousness of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, not from works of the flesh. So if you have your Bibles, let's read. We'll read straight through verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3, and I'll come back and make some comments. Paul writes this. If then, nope, this is the wrong text. Sorry, that's Colossians. Paul also wrote that, but that'll be toward the end of the service. (laughs) All right, finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul begins this portion of text, uh, as any good preacher does, halfway, a little over halfway through the, the letter with the in conclusion, or finally, uh, just a little over halfway. And that, that word brothers translated there in the ESV can also be translated as brothers and sisters or simply church. And so Paul says, finally church, rejoice in the Lord. Now, up until, <clears throat> up until this point, he has anticipated their joy and their rejoicing. Uh, just last week, we saw that he anticipates their rejoicing at seeing Epaphroditus in chapter 2, uh, verses 28. And in that same portion, is that same verse, he charges them to receive him with joy. At the beginning of chapter 2, he calls, he calls the church <clears throat> excuse me, to complete his joy. The end of chapter 1, he says that, that he will remain in this life for their joy. And at the beginning of the letter, he tells them, he began this letter by telling them that he prays for them with all joy. But at this point in the letter, it was, joy has always been implied. He implies that this is going to be the response that they have up until now. In his conclusion, that's a little over halfway through the letter, he gives it as a command. Rejoice in the Lord. Find your deepest joy in who God is and what God has done. And then there's this odd phrase afterwards <clears throat> where he says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's emphasizing that joy is going to be, rejoicing and finding joy is going to be a thread that will continue on as it has been a thread through the first half of the letter. It will continue on through the second half. And so he's reminding the church here that, that continual reminders of God's truth, they become a safeguard to the community. He says it is safe. For you. It's no trouble for me. It is safe for you to hear this truth again, to, ha to have this command again, because he knows the way of our hearts. We tend to not find joy in this life. We tend to struggle with rejoicing. And so Paul says, listen, find your joy in Christ. And this is what he's going to unpack in these next 11 verses, is that joy, true joy, Everlasting joy can only be found by placing our confidence in Christ because, as I said earlier, confidence in Christ leads to eternal joy. Confidence in self leads to eternal loss. You end up like poor old Casey trying to hit a ball. And everybody's disappointed. And so Paul directs our attention to confidence in the flesh, and he does so uh, by using some very shocking language. Begins verse 2 by saying, look out for the dogs. He gives a warning. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, 
I think it's, it's prudent for us to point out that in this letter, in Philippians, Paul addresses uh, groups of people. In chapter 1, we looked at a group of people that was, was preaching uh, with, with impure motives, but they were preaching a pure gospel. And if you remember from that sermon I gave earlier, uh, Paul says that, that he finds joy. He rejoices in the fact that even though their motives are impure, they're, doing it, they're, they're preaching to slight Paul who's in prison. Their message is true, and the gospel is being preached. Now look at how Paul deals with this group uh, preaching a false gospel. He goes on the offense. He, he, he switches into attack mode with this group. It's, it's unlike the other group where their motives were just impure. See, Paul initially, right away, begins by using some language that, that Jews uh, and those familiar with the Jewish context would have, have been trigger words for them. Uh, in our modern context, to, grow, to call a group of teachers dogs would probably be perceived as a derogatory insult. Uh, this term, this, this word that's translated into English as dogs, is, it wouldn't have been necessarily perceived as a derogatory insult uh, within its historical context. This term actually had a distinctly religious sense to it. It referred to Gentiles. It referred to those outside of God's community. Isaiah used this. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament used this word to to denote those who are outside of God's community. And so initially, Paul used, uh, this was used by Paul to get the attention of these Judaizers, of these men, this group of people that were teaching the gospel and our works, the gospel plus our works. And so Paul, knowing that these teachers would likely hear this letter, uh, possibly even be in the congregation as the letter was being read, uses a highly charged word that they would have been familiar with, that, that denotes something. And one commentator said that Paul uses this word to make a startling point. And that startling point is that a great reversal has happened, has been brought in by Christ. And it means that the Judaizers who... who that these Judaizers are the ones who must be regarded as Gentiles, those outside of God's community. Now, they would have been shocked by this because Israel had always been God's people, God's chosen race. Everyone outside of that was dogs, Gentiles, outside of God's community. And so Paul says there's a great reversal that has happened here. Those who once thought they were part of God's community that are now are preaching the gospel plus law, even under the banner and guise of Christian, they do not get it. They don't get the gospel. Because it is the gospel plus nothing else. We add nothing. We contribute nothing to this. Christ has done everything. And so Paul goes on the offense towards these men uh, because... As, as another commentator said, that, that this, the, and actually he, he references that Paul in, in verse 18 of this chapter 3 calls them enemies of the cross. And he says that, that these enemies of the cross pose a practical threat to a weakened Christian community. Paul recognizes this. 
Paul's prescription to the Philippian church is doctrine, correct teaching. He goes on to say, understand the content and character of your faith, and you will stop being intimidated by the barking of your opponents. And so Paul says, be on the lookout for those who think they are doing God's work but are not doing God's work. They're evildoers. And he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then in verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. So what is he, what is he getting at here in this text? Because there's a lot of Jewishness in what Paul is saying here. In fact, actually, what he's referencing back to is Genesis chapter 17, where God and Abraham make a covenant. In that covenant, God, who upholds all the terms of that covenant, does all that is required. He he gives a sign to Abraham, an outward sign that this covenant has been made between Abraham and the Lord. And that sign of the covenant was circumcision. Now, just imagine with me for a moment the early tribes in in that region that would have heard. They would have heard about this Mesopotamian man named Abram who moved from the very first established city of Ur and moved to an unknown region, just took off, didn't know where he was going. He just took off because an unforeseen or an unseen God told him to go. And as he uh, enters into a covenant with this God, this God tells him to do what? As, an, as a sign that he is in covenant relationship with him? Now, I mean, just, just think about how this would have spread throughout the region. Those, those Hebrews did what? <laughs> they, what? <laughs> Word would have spread quickly about the sign of this covenant. This report probably got people's attention. Now, there are Jewish teachers entering the church, instructing Christians to follow the way of the Jews. And the gospel to these men, it was not enough. The works of the, works of the flesh were also necessary. And so what Paul says here is he's saying to watch out for these that would add to the gospel. And he says, he says in verse 3, for we are the circumcision, we are the outside, are, are, are the sign of God's working within the community. And then he lists three things that are byproducts of of those, a part of God's community. We are the sign of God's covenant, that Paul says here. He says, those who worship by the Spirit of God, it's referencing back to a conversation that Jesus had recorded in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman about worship and about how to worship rightly. There's those who worship by the Spirit of God Those who glory in Christ Jesus, not glory in their heritage, not glory in the people that they are part of, in their bloodline, not glory in the works that they are able to do, they glory in Christ. And to further emphasize that point, Paul says, and they put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul diverges here to to speak for a moment on this topic of confidence in the flesh. 
Because Paul here is, is not opposing these Jewish teachers because he's got an issue with Judaism or he has, uh, he has uh, animosity towards these men individually. Paul is opposing them. He is, he's on the offense because the purity of the gospel is at stake. The purity of the church's doctrine is on the line. And so Paul attacks this message this false gospel. Because the reality is no longer is an act of the flesh, is circumcision a sign of the people of God. Paul has addressed this already in Romans chapter 2. Paul made it very clear where he writes this. He says, no one is a Jew, God's people, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew God's community, God's people, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul writes that in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. It is not those with confidence in self-righteous acts or uh, of the flesh, according to the law, who are God's people. But Paul says, rather, those who worship rightly those who glory in Jesus and those who put no confidence in self-righteous works. Paul is not speaking here from conjecture or animosity. Paul is speaking from personal experience. And this is where he takes us. Verses 4 through 6, Paul lists his credentials. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. He goes through his list, circumcised on the eighth day, which was according to Jewish law. He's, not, he's proving to these Judaizers, I'm not an outsider. I followed the letter of the law, where he will go, where he will use to, to go to his conclusion. But he goes, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. His bloodline was right. His lineage was correct. And then Paul says, as to his actions, he says, to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, they were the strictest sect of Judaism. They upheld, it was, it was the Pharisaical group that added 600 plus regulations and laws upon the people during that 400 years. You know, when you flip from reading through the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's about 400 years or so there that God just was silent. It's called the silent years. During that time, there was a Jewish revolt and, and the Pharisee, this group that began in, in its origins in good, they wanted to return to following God's way. But the Pharisees, over the number of years, gained power and influence and control and used that to bring oppression to the people. But Paul says, I was one of them. I had every I dotted and every T crossed when it, concerning the Jewish law, the law of Pharisee. Zeal for Judaism, he wasn't just teaching it along the way. He was persecuting the church. And then Paul ends this little section by saying, righteousness according to the law, blameless. Who could say that? <laughs> right? This is, this is Paul's like mic drop moment. Like, you guys want gloves to go off? We can, we can go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. As according to the law, blameless. You know what's interesting about all of this? Everything in Paul's credentials that he listed here 
they could have gone and researched. They could have gone, hey, did anybody know Saul? Hey, Sanhedrin guys, did anybody know? They could have gone to Jerusalem and they could have done some legwork and found out everything that he said here. Paul said, if you want to, to talk about confidence in the flesh, that was me. I was there. Righteousness according to the law, blameless. What Paul says next, he says all of these things, and he reveals a growing dissatisfaction with the works of the flesh. He says those things at first, namely his religious behavior. And then he turns those things into all things, all things outside of Christ. He's referring to, to all actions of the flesh that one would, one would place confidence in. And Paul says, all of these things are counted as loss. They're no longer of value to me. Paul says, make no mistake, they were once valuable to him. Valuable enough that he would track down those who would, who would seek to distort his way of thinking while he was uh, in, in, in a Pharisee and pursuing the way or the church at that time, he would track them down and put them in prison because they opposed him. Paul said, I was zealous. I was passionate. Paul says, I was wrong. Because I was placing confidence in something unworthy of my confidence, namely himself. And he says, so those things that I used to place confidence in, that I used to find my identity in, I count them as lost. They're no longer of value. And they should be discarded. And Paul uses some very strong language here. He says that these, these things that I used to place confidence, they should be discarded as skubala. That's the Greek word that he uses there. It, it essentially means poop. Dung, refuse, garbage. Paul says it's worthless. The only point of it is to be gotten rid of, to be removed, because nobody wants it around here. He says, that is the view that we are to have. And Paul exemplifies it. He says, this is the view I have of that which I used to place on a pedestal. That which I used to find my confidence in. There's no need to minimize the effect of the word that he uses or to downplay the intensity. Paul intended to be offensive with this language. Why? Because the self-righteous acts of man are offensive especially in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done for us. In the light of the gospel, we ought to be offended by our attempts to earn our own righteousness through our, our own merits. We should view it as scubala, pointless. We should view our attempts to earn righteousness through human works, even works according to the law. As worthless. So what is the solution, Paul? <clears throat> Confidence in the flesh leads us, leaves us disappointed like those spectators at the, at the baseball game when Casey struck out. So Paul says, confidence in the flesh is not the route to go even though it is our default setting. He says the gospel allows us to place confidence in Christ. And this is where he spends the rest of this portion of the letter. 
He says, for his sake, this is in verse 8, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubala, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul says, I place confidence in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ in his ability to please God by fulfilling the law because he did it perfectly. Paul says, all the earthly accolades that he had, and he had many, all of the earthly accolades Paul had, he says, I have lost to be found in Christ and for Christ to be found in Paul. He says, I want to know Christ and I want to make Christ known. For Paul, what he once thought was important now carries little significance, really no significance at all. But what is significant to Paul is that he has been found by Christ and that he is found in Christ. So what does this look like? What does it look like to be found in Christ? Well, having revealed the folly of confidence in man's work and the danger of those preaching confidence in the flesh, that false gospel, Paul says, confidence in Christ's work leads us to true righteousness, but it requires a few things. One, humility, a correct view of ourselves. We must recognize our need. We must see these works of the flesh for what they truly are so that we might see the beauty of the gospel for what it truly is. It requires faith. And I love that Paul doesn't say it requires this much faith and used an amount there. He didn't say because it doesn't require an amount of faith. That's not the, the amount is not the point here. It's the object of the faith that matters, where your faith is placed. Faith rightly placed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, when we respond to the gospel with faith and repentance, God does amazing work. And this is all God's work, but he says, we are justified. Justification is a, is a teaching in the church, a doctrine of the church, and And Paul explains it here as not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I don't know if you know this, but none of us are righteous. The scripture tells us that quite plainly. Uh, Since Genesis chapter 3, we are all in the in the, in the camp of rebels against God, uh, because clearly because we just don't act in accordance to God's righteous standard. And God's righteousness, what that means for us to, 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 to wrap our mind around that, because we hear the word righteous and righteousness used. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. God always acts according to what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. And so we have missed that standard 
Ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have fallen short. And that's, a, that's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. He says, but now <clears throat> the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. The distinction he's talking about there is between Jew and non-Jew. God's community outside of God's community. He says there's no distinction. For all have sinned. And all does mean all at this point. Sometimes all can be interesting in Scripture. Does all mean just all the Jews? Does all, no, all means every human being has sinned and falls short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be found in Christ? It means disregarding self-righteous acts of the flesh and clinging to Christ's righteousness through faith, the righteousness that comes from God. This is, as C.S. Lewis says, the great exchange, our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. We are declared righteous. And Paul says, <clears throat> we have a righteousness that's not of our own from the law, but it comes through faith in Christ. And it depends on faith. Paul says this, this justified state, state, this righteousness leads us that, in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so what Paul is alluding to here is, is the doctrinal teaching of sanctification. It essentially means us being more like me, being less like Nate and more like Jesus. One of my favorite theologians, uh, Wayne Grudem, describes, uh, describes sanctification, the process of sanctification, as this. He says, you know, we start here on the line. This is, this is Nate and this is Jesus and the goal is that Nate is less like Nate and more like Jesus at the end. And it'd be really awesome if it just goes like this the whole life. That's not the way sanctification typically works. He said, actually, sanctification looks a little bit more like this as you're getting to the point. And the point is that at the beginning and at the end, I end more like Christ than I started. And there's days that I'm more like Jesus and I'm more like my flesh. I'm more like Jesus, and, 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 and Sam talks about these two ditches. Confidence in the flesh, we can fall into one of these two ditches, and it can happen on either end of that spectrum. One is, man, according to the law, I'm blameless. Right? We end up here, and that ditch that we fall into is pride, arrogance, Casey at bat, until we whiff. And then we can fall in the other ditch, which is despair. Neither one of those is the gospel. The gospel says Christ has done it all. And so Paul says we are justified, we are given Christ's righteousness, and we are being made like Christ, becoming like Christ. Essentially, if I were to boil that down to a very simplistic Form, it would be this. Being, being sanctified means Christ is the greatest reward. There is no greater prize 
that this earth has to offer. And there are many prizes in this earth. Paul lists some for him in his context. I'm sure it wouldn't take long for us to come up with a list of our own of those things which draw our attention and our affection. But the process of sanctification is saying that those things become less and less meaningful as Christ becomes more and more prominent in our view. And that's what Paul calls us to as he concludes this text. Verse 11, he says, By any means possible that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's sight is set on his eternity with Christ. And so oftentimes in sanctification, God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And so Paul says, I can endure the suffering of this life because my sight is set on the goal ahead of me. And that is not something this earth has to offer. That is eternity with Christ. And Paul says, I will be glorified. I will be raised up with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Paul addresses this as well. He says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The prize is eternity with Christ. For Paul, there is no greater prize, nothing this world has to offer that is greater than Christ. So my charge to us, church, persevere. Trust in a sovereign God who is perfect in righteousness, who has begun a good work in you and will be faithful to complete it. And pursue the prize of knowing him now with our eyes set that one day we will be fully united with him forever. We need to view this life, our actions on this life, as temporary, as our mission field. This is not the end all. And I pray that for those of us who proclaim to be followers of Jesus, that the largest banner in our life, a few years ago, they had that like word art thing. You'd go online and you'd punch in a bunch of words that you'd want and they'd make this cool like little graphic. And, and if you took a chunk of text, you could drop it in there and they would pick out the words that were most prominent within that chunk of text and they would make them larger in the font. You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, I pray that our lives, when the story of our life goes into that into that algorithm, what comes out is Christ that is big and central. It is the banner of our lives. And that's what it was for Paul. That's why he can make statements for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. Because his identity, his purpose was in Jesus. So as we conclude this morning, I have a question us to to consider. What is it that you are placing your confidence in? This is an opportunity. This season, this past year, is an opportunity for us to examine where our confidence is. When things that we once 
thought were stable begin to shake, and we see cracks in their foundation, and we realize this is only temporary. Does it shatter your confidence? If it does, maybe your confidence was placed too highly upon that, which was unworthy. Where is your confidence today? Paul loudly declares the insufficiency of our works of the flesh. And he loudly proclaims our great need for Christ's righteousness. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came. It's what we celebrate this season. That God incarnate drew near. He did not stay distant from us. He drew near to us in order to save us. My prayer is that you and I would refuse the natural tendency to place our confidence in who we are and the works we've done. That instead, may you and I join with Paul by placing our confidence in the only one who is worthy, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.